In this Gersville episode exploring the life and work of the band Pink Floyd and its members, I'm going to cover the group's formative years in the decade of the 1960s. So, I'll begin with looking at Pink Floyd's formation, before it was even known as such, and then cover some of the band's early music. I'm going to say here that I'm not covering um, band members like Sid Barrett, David Gilmore and Roger Waters too much, as I'm dedicating specific episodes to them. Um, so this episode's really just about the beginnings of the band itself. So with that in mind, we will begin by taking a visit to early 1960s Cambridge. In his 2013 book, Pink Floyd, Behind the Wall, music critic Hugh Fielder writes that the origin of Pink Floyd is rooted in the history university, historic sorry, university town of Cambridge. Certainly, this is true for three of its key members, Barrett, Waters and Gilmore. Fielder describes Cambridge as being, in quotes, an idyllic place to grow up during the post-war years of the 1950s and 1960s. With 10,000 students in residence, the university was the town's biggest employer, providing jobs for everyone from porters to professors. The flat terrain made it easy to get around by bike, and most people did. At this time, rock and roll was only just emerging, and it was far from accepted in the mainstream culture, and those who wanted to hear it would have to tune their transistor radios to European commercial stations like Radio Luxembourg. Something the so-called Cambridge Trio would have done as teenagers, acknowledges Fielder. There was, however, another popular hotspot for music lovers in Cambridge in the name of Miller's Music Shop. It was here that both Barrett and Gilmore would buy their first acoustic guitars. Barrett and Gilmore were the same age and became friends from their school days, whereas although Roger Waters was older, he was childhood friends with Barrett. Roger's mother taught Sid Barrett in primary school and Waters and Barrett lived near one another as children. Drummer and other founding member of Pink Floyd, Nick Mason, would meet Roger Waters first when the two studied together at the London Polytechnic at Fleetgen Street. As I won't dive too much into the life of Nick Mason, let me tell you a little bit more about him. Mason was born on the 27th of January, 1944, in Edge-Baston, Birmingham. Mason lived in a relatively wealthy family. His father was a documentary film director, a job that prompted the family to move to North London when Nick was two years old. Mason was the only boy, having three sisters, Sarah, Melanie and Serena. Speaking of the Mason family, as quoted in Mark Blake's 2013 book, Pigs Might Fly, the inside story of Pink Floyd, the band's first manager, Peter Jenner, is quoted as saying, Like the rest of his future bandmates, Nick's upbringing was comfortable, though, in his case, a little more comfortable. I remember being amazingly impressed that Nick's parents had a swimming pool. Nick was introduced to rock and roll through the likes of Bill Hadley and Elvis Presley, and his first foray into drumming was as part of a school group called the Hot Rods. Mason was educated at Frencham Heights, which he described in his 2004 book as having a more liberal approach to education. 
When Mason left school, he enrolled on an architecture course at the Polytechnic in 1962. Actually, Blake writes that Mason was far more interested in cars than music per se, and it was his 1930 Austin which brought him to the attention of Roger Waters. In his own book, Mason says the car was the only reason Waters, in quotes, deigned to speak to me. After playing music together, Mason and Rogers eventually formed a group with other Polytechnic students that would become known as Sigma Six. This band formed in response to an advert for band members by fellow students Keith Noble and Clive Metcalf in September 1963. Mark Blake, in his book, writes that, in quotes, the band took the name the Sigma Six after expanding to a sextet with the arrival of another Poly student, pianist Richard William Wright. Around this time of September 1963, Waters and Mason were living in a flat at 39 Stanhope Gardens near Crouch End, London. Stanhope would become a place for many a rehearsal and lineup changes as time went on. Mason and Waters' landlord was a lecturer at Polytechnic named Mike Leonard. Leonard was interested in the use of sound and light and performed often with the band when keyboardist Richard Wright was away on holiday, writes Ufielder. Another one of these students in the early days was Bob Kloss. Kloss was a rather accomplished guitar player influenced by the blues and jazz style of America. However, the styles of Keith Noble and Clive Metcalf did not gel well with that of Bob Kloss, and it was not long before Noble and Metcalf, Metcalf sorry, left the band. At the tail end of summer 1965, Mason had moved out of the flat at Stanhope Gardens and Bob Kloss had moved in to live with Waters. Sid Barrett also became a resident of Stanhope around this time. The personnel of Sigma switched too. Kloss was now lead guitarist, Waters was on bass and a new member, Chris Dennis, was vocalist. Kloss did not, however, remain much longer with the band which had now settled on a name change to the T-set. Again, in Mark Blake's book, Richard Wright is quoted as saying, Bob was a far better musician than any of us, but I think he had some exam problems and he felt he ought to apply himself to work, whereas the rest of us weren't so conscientious. Waters, also quoted by Blake, explains in quotes, Bob Kloss was a man with a great wealth of blues runs in his head. When he left, we hadn't anyone who had any blues knowledge, so we had to start doing something else. Sid took over on lead guitar, and I'm sure it was the noises that Pete Townshead was making then, squeaks and feedback, that influenced Sid. So we started making strange noises instead of the blues. There have been accounts of Bob Kloss being uncomfortable with the psychedelic direction of the band's music, but he denies this as being way too glib. Nevertheless, the band was taking a more abstract approach to music, to music sorry, you could say, and soon Chris Dennis, whose own style was more R&B, was replaced by Sid Barrett as lead singer. Apparently, Waters had wanted to fire Dennis anyway, but a posting by the RAF to Bahrain made the decision for him. Speaking in Mark Blake's book, Dennis recalls that he, in quotes, wouldn't have stuck with them for much longer anyway. He goes on to say that, when I came back from Bahrain, there was a Pink Floyd LP in the shops. When I heard it, I didn't relate to it at all. 
the kind of music Sid would end up doing came as a complete surprise to me. With Sid Barrett now at the vocal helm and Richard Wright back in place as keyboardist, the band began to usher in performances at pubs and dance halls. They soon became the resident band at Countdown Club near Kensington High Street in London. The band underwent another name change later in 1965. Apparently, Sid Barrett was motivated to rename the tea set when a fellow band at one gig shared this title also. Taken from records in Barrett's own collection, the Pink Floyd sound was an amalgamation of two blues musicians. These were Pinky Anderson and Floyd Council. The Pink Floyd sound began to make a name for themselves in London's underground counterculture scene particularly in thanks to their performances at London's Marquee Club beginning in March 1966. Shortly, the group's sets became more ambitious as they made use of lighting, audience reaction, improvisation and playing on orthodox instruments. Hugh Fielder writes that, in quotes, It was at a spontaneous underground event in June 1966 that Peter Jenner, an assistant lecturer at the London School of Economics, first saw the Pink Floyd sound. He later described the band to Pink Floyd biographer Miles as a mixture of R&B and electronic noises, a far-out, freaky pop group. Jenner was so taken with Barrett and Wright's sound effects that he, along with business partner and friend Andrew King, took to managing the group. Fielder observes that it was Jenner who suggested the band remove the word sound from their name and instead be known simply as Pink Floyd, which of course they did. Rolling on through 1966, Pink Floyd emerged as the central player in the sound of London's underground scene. Jenner and King's connections allowed the band to gain some press attention, including from the Financial Times and Sunday Times. One such press event was the launch of an alternative newspaper named International Times, for which Pink Floyd headlined on October 15th, 1966 at the Roundhouse, North London. Among the 2,000-strong audience was the Beatles' very own Paul McCartney, who witnessed a show of psychedelic light displays, showings of William Burroughs and Kenneth Anger films. And Hugh Fielder writes in his book, The highlight of the evening was Pink Floyd's performance, which saw them play on a trailer they'd found in a corner of the building. There was no stage after all. It was the first time... Some of the audience had seen the band or their light show, and it led to national press coverage. As the year drew to a close, Pink Floyd sets were made up more than less of Barrett's original songwriting. Although Pink Floyd was far from popular um, above ground, and their fan base was uniquely strong at the UFO Club in London. Indeed, around December 1966, Pink Floyd played the opening night of the UFO Club and soon became resident band of this club, located in a basement ballroom made up of food stalls, drugs, incognito stars like Kendricks and Pete Townshead. Reflecting on this, Nick Mason is quoted in Fielder's book as saying, For a brief moment, it looked as if there might actually be some combining of activities. People would go down to this place and do a number of things, rather than simply a band performing. 
There would be mad actors, a couple of light shows, perhaps the recitation of some poetry, a lot of wandering about and a lot of tearful chatter. By the end of 1966, Barrett was living in a flat in Errolham Street in Covent Garden with a number of his Cambridge friends. This flat would be the site of much of Barrett's songwriting. Biographer Nicholas Schaffner wrote of Barrett's performances. They were enthusiastic, leaping around, madness, improvisation, so inspired to get past his limitations and into areas that were very interesting, which none of the others could do. At the outset of 1967, Pink Floyd were thinking more seriously about their musical ambitions. They went to record a cheap demo tape to offer to record companies, but when they played this to UFO co-founder Joe Boyd, they were told, it wasn't quite up to scratch, writes Fielder. Joe Boyd was actually a UK representative for American record label Elektra, and Pink Floyd had been hopeful that he might help them to be signed to Elektra. This was not to be. However, Boyd did take Pink Floyd's demo tape to the German-based label Polydor. This time, Polydor were more intrigued, but more so was booking agent Brian Morrison, and it was Morrison who advised Jenner and King to take a new demo tape to EMI, at the time the UK's biggest record label. So Pink Floyd, with Boyd in tow, recorded two songs, Arnold Lane and Let's Roll Another One. The latter subsequently became known as Candy in a Current Bun to make it more radio-friendly. EMI were interested. Under the company's policy, Pink Floyd were signed but with an in-house producer. The band accepted and John Boyd was gone. Oh, sorry, I think I've said that wrong. Would it be? It was Joe Boyd. Fielder acknowledges that this decision made some in the underground scene accuse the band of selling out. But Fielder also quotes Nick Mason's words on this, as told to biographer Barry Miles. Everyone was talking about the psychedelic revolution and light and sound and all the rest of it. People were looking to try and guess, as they always are, what was going to happen next in music. This looked like it was going to happen next. I mean, we were incredibly awful. We were a dreadful band. We must have sounded frightful. But we were so different and so odd. You look at the early photographs and we look like an elderly version of the monkeys. So the record deal was in fact a really rather good one, considering we had no track record and couldn't play our instruments. Pink Floyd's first single released under the EMI label was Arnold Lane, a song about an apparently real man who stole ladies' underwear from washing lines in Cambridge and who, according to Roger Waters, was never caught. The song peaked at number 20 in the UK singles chart and their second single, See Emily Play, was released on the 16th of June 1967 and peaked at number 6. The band were becoming increasingly known nationally and even secured three performances on top of the pops throughout the late 60s. Both Arnold Lane and C. Emily Play were singles from Pink Floyd's seminal album The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, released on the 5th of August 1967. Actually, See Emily Play was originally featured as a single on the US album release only. The song would feature on the 40th anniversary of the album, which would be released in 2007. 
upon the album's original release in 1967, the album peaked at number 6 on the UK album chart. The album's title gives some insight into the influences of Sid Barrett. Indeed, it is taken from the chapter title of Kenneth Graham's 1908 children's book, The Wind in the Willows. In this chapter, 7 to be specific, the character of Otter has lost his son, and Rat and Mole go in search of him. They come across the sound of pipe music in the woods, just before dawn. This is where they are met with the sight of a hoofed deity, strongly indicated to be the great god Pan of Greek mythology. Rat and Mole fall asleep, and when Mole awakens, he is aware of having had a dream of which he cannot remember any context. But Rat notices the hoof prints belonging to the deity who is suggested to have made them forgetful. Nevertheless, Rat and Mole are reunited with the otter's son, and they soon leave with him, but they also leave with a feeling of having experienced something altogether unusual. There is something very strange and reminiscent of the uncanny in this story, and certainly the great god Pan has been made a gothic horror character most famously by Welsh author, author sorry, Arthur Mackin's 1890 novella named so. Although Pan was a deity actually associated with nature and shepherds, believed to have resided in lonely dark places like caves and mountains. The feeling of strange, unusual dreaminess is certainly experienced by listeners of Pink Floyd's 1967 album. A 2018 music review on the site 53rd and 3rd provides a great overview of the tracks on the Piper at the Gates of Dawn, and I'd like to highlight a number of the points made in this article by its author. The album opens with Astronomy Domain where a radio chatter-like voice, almost as if announcing flights, leads up to the guitar and then to a single melodic note and then to Barrett and Wright's harmony. In the review mentioned, the author describes the overall effect as being, in quotes, one of eerie detachment as if the vocalists are androids. The stream of consciousness lyrics sound like someone experiencing an acid trip, but they could also form an impressionistic version of a journey through the back half of our solar system. The second track is Lucifer Sam, about the singer's girlfriend's cat, who creeps the singer, Barrett, out. The author's review from 53rd and 3rd notes that, in quotes, the echoes and reverberation combine with the panning to create a soundscape of playful tension over a surprisingly danceable go-go rhythm. Roger Waters' frigging soars on the bass and Sid's vocal is his strongest and clearest on the album. The next track is Matilda Mother, a song about childhood imagination, made all the more dreamlike by the broken guitar chords, harmonious verses and Barrett's isolating vocal. Next is the song Flaming, which sounds far darker and fantastical as the child is left to imagine uninhibited by parental guidance. One other highlight to mention is, of course, the wild, spacey interstellar overdrive, which is probably one of the best interpretations on record of Pink Floyd's live improvisations from that time. Critical reception for the album at the time was relatively positive. NME gave the album 4 out of 5 stars, as did Record Mirror, who also commented that the psychedelic image of the group really comes to life record-wise on this LP, which is a fine showcase for both their talent and the recording technique. Plenty of mind-blowing sound, both blatant and subtle here, and the whole thing is extremely well performed. 
Paul McCartney too reportedly rated the album favourably. The legacy of the Piper at the Gates of Dawn hails it as a psychedelic masterpiece and originator. A 1999 article by Rolling Stone called it the golden achievement of Sid Barrett. Many have considered it a concept album, possibly because of the running themes of imagination, space exploration and dreaminess throughout the tracks. In a review for the 40th anniversary release of the album, Pitchfork rated it 9.4 out of 10, calling it an essential album. And they go on to say, in quotes, It's the presence of Barrett, who wrote all but one song on Piper, that accounts for the album's influence as more than just a psychedelic relic. As a lyricist, his stream of conscious, nonsense verses are every bit the match of Lewis Carroll. As a vocalist, often singing with keyboardist Rick Wright, his languid delivery lends the album a dreamy quality at odds with its menace. Once again, I will not dwell too much on Sid Barrett as his life will be covered in the next episode. But it was clear around the far side of 1967 that Barrett was not doing well. With the album on sale, Pink Floyd began to play to larger audiences at the UFO Club and the band members were concerned about Barrett's mental state and erratic behaviour. However hopeful, they were that it might get better. Peter Jenner's assistant, June Child, is quoted as recalling, I found Barrett in the dressing room and he was so gone. Roger Waters and I got him on his feet and we got him out to the stage. The band started to play and Sid just stood there. He had his guitar around his neck and his arms just hanging down. Following Barrett's decline, Pink Floyd had to cancel a number of high-profile performances. With help from his band members, health professionals and friends in the underground scene, Barrett did start to seem to be improving, and Pink Floyd began a US tour in late 1967. However, strange displays by Barrett, like not responding and staring blankly when on the Dick Clark and Pat Boone show, cut the tour short. Reaching a critical decision, the band added David Gilmour to the lineup. Early 1968, Gilmour was announced as a fifth member of Pink Floyd, with Barrett remaining as a non-performing songwriter. According to Gilmour, whilst en route to a performance in Southampton in January of that same year, the band decided to simply just not pick Barrett up. By March 1968, Barrett has decided to leave Pink Floyd. However, Jenner and King believed Barrett was the key to the success of the band and they instead represented him and they terminated any relationship they had with Pink Floyd. In the shadow of Barrett's departure, Waters stepped forth as the band's prominent songwriter. Pink Floyd was now recording their second album at Abbey Road Studios. Work for this album had begun the previous year, and ultimately would include Sid Barrett's last contribution to the band in the shape of the song Jug Band Blues. Recording was fraught with some rifts between record producer Norman Smith and Nick Mason. For example, Mason was struggling with the drums on the song Remember a Day, and Smith often stepped in to play Mason's part when rehearsing this song. 
Smith was less keen on Pink Floyd's 20 Minutes instrumentals too. Mason and Waters became the chief songwriters for this second album, and Gilmore is quoted as describing their method of music writing akin to an architectural diagram, as neither Mason or Waters could read music back then. The album, A Saucer Full of Secrets, was released in June 1968, and it peaked at number 9 on the UK album charts. I suppose you could say that the album's reception was mixed to favourable at the time. Record Mirror is quoted as describing it as background music to a party. Some saw the titular single as a spiritual experience, whereas others simply derided it as boring and overdrawn. Rolling Stone did not think the album was as interesting as their first, and they were critical of Barrett's absent contribution. However, Nick Mason has been quoted in 2014 as saying, I think there are ideas contained that were that we have continued to use all the way throughout our career. I think it was a quite good way of making since departure and Dave's arrival of marking, sorry. It's rather nice to have it on one record where you get both things. It's a crossfade rather than a cut. Indeed, a lot of people have actually considered the second album a transition album to go between the change in personnel of the band members. One highlight of A Saucer Full of Secrets is perhaps the song Controls to the Heart of the Sun, written by Roger Waters and sung by him also. However, it was actually a track that had been performed first with Barrett. The lyrics are inspired by Chinese poetry. The fan review site Prog Archives provides a good account of fan opinion on the album. One review by contributor Sean Train highlights another track, which is in fact a saucer full of secrets. Train writes in quotes, The smooth opening movement soon transforms into an oppressive atmosphere, leading to the more difficult second movement where Mason's repeated drum rolls are the centre of the other three colleagues' gradually more cacophonous crescendoing improvisations. The return to Cam, sorry, the return to Cam is gloom is gloomy with Wright's sombre organ taking over, alone at first, but soon joined by mellotrons and heavenly choirs, leading to a grandiose celestial finale. In a 2007 BBC review of the album, perhaps informed by a heavy dose of hindsight, Darrell Eastley reflects on the impact of Sid Barrett, and he is quoted as saying. Although Barrett plays on three tracks of the album, it is Jug Band Blues, recorded in November 1967, that is the most chilling. A song about loss and alienation, its sequencing as the last track really underlines his departure. The Salvation Army Band of North London's improvisation in the middle is cut abruptly short, just like Barrett's period within the group. And then, like a postcard from an outer space colony, he returns for the 30-second coda, culminating in the lines, and what exactly is a dream, and what exactly is a joke. Although the group was moving forward, it was an early demonstration of just how much his spirit would inform them for the rest of their career. In 1969, two more albums would be released by Pink Floyd, the soundtrack for the movie More and Umma Gumma. The latter album was pretty well received at the time of its release, but has since gone on to land in the bottom-ranked works of Pink Floyd. 
Reportedly, Waters and Gilmore were unhappy with the album upon reflection, and Nick Mason has been quoted as calling it a failed experiment. The 1970s would then see Pink Floyd create some of their most renowned work, and this will be explored in the next episodes. I recognise that there might be more in-depth analysis missing, and capturing a decade's worth of Pink Floyd's material in one podcast episode is quite a big ask. But I hope that I have given a fair and interesting brief overview of the origins of this band. Thanks for listening to this first proper episode. series was written and recorded by Megan and hosted on Anchor. Music was taken from Antof Lazov on Pixabay.